Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you, the gentleman on the show today did my show nine years ago in Burbank. And pretty much since then, he does what he does all the time. This guy always works. I swear to God. And what's good is when you see his name in the credits, you know he's going to be good. I'm not blowing smoke up his ass because he's a great actor. He always kills it. And it just makes it wonderful. And he's back today, and we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. And I, I have a lot of stuff to delve into with him. And my guest is Stephen Tobolowsky. How you doing? I am doing very fine, Steve. Good to talk to you. I have to ask you first because I am just thinking what your life went through it was last week, two weeks ago, when it was Groundhog Day, which I missed. I said Groundhog's Day, and my wife yelled at me, and she says, I hate when people say Groundhog's Day. But what is it like, because Ned Ryerson's such a big character, what is it like for you when that day, do you look at the calendar and go, oh, man, people are just going to be bothering me? It's, it's, uh, it's a yearly thing. It's like uh, <laughs> what, what was... Uh, you know, Toto and Dorothy and the, you know, Wizard of Oz. It, it, it's like one of those things that happens every year. And uh, people like to talk about the movie because they love the movie. So, you, you know, they don't want to talk about it because they don't care or they hate it. They love the movie, so I'm very happy to talk about it. It was uh, an amazing, strange experience, so that was lovely. But I do... Steve, I do look at the calendar and go like, you know, when it gets to be December, the middle of December, I'm not thinking it's Christmas time. I'm thinking like it's time to strap down for some of the Groundhog interviews. So tell me what made it such a strange, as you said, setting. Well, tell me how the whole movie came about, because, you know, everyone remembers you. I, I posted, actually, I posted a picture of you when you did the show with me in Burbank from the studio, and I said, I pictured it posted on Groundhog's Day, and everyone putting the memes of you. And, oh, my God, oh, my God. Oh, it, it's, it's great, and it shows you're very memorable, and that's what's great. It's not like, oh, my God, that guy sucked. They're like, oh, we loved him. Tell me about, the, tell me about getting the role, and what was it like shooting it? Well, uh, getting the role was incredibly strange. Uh, I was working on a movie at the time and we were shooting in paris and i should mention it's paris california <laughs> not paris paris california which is about two hours and 40 minutes from los angeles and it's the hot air balloon capital of of california people go there to ride the hot air balloons but we were uh shooting a movie there and for the only time in my life I, I played a gangster in this movie, and the fellow who played my brother is a wonderful actor named Kurt Fuller. Uh, Kurt Fuller played a uh, deaf mute, my brother, deaf mute, and we had been through all sorts of training at uh, Columbia Studios at the time, now Sony Studios, to teach us sign language for the deaf, American Sign Language. And so throughout the whole movie, first of all, that movie was strange because we were speaking in sign language to each other. For the only time in my life, in my career, we're on location, and the movie put Kurt and I up in the same room. The same room. Two adult men were up in the same room with the, you know, we got the little beds there, and it's like, you know, summer camp. Now, I had just done an audition for Ned Ryerson for Groundhog Day. I had ju just done an audition and I just heard that I had a callback with Harold Ramis. And I'm, and I'm now in Paris, California, two hours and 40 minutes away from the studio where I have to have my callback the next day. And Kurt Fuller and I are in the double beds, side by side. And in the night, it was like a camp out. Kurt said, well, you, you doing anything? You got anything going? And I had learned at this point in time that any other actor doesn't want to hear anything, that you have a job or an audition or anything. The only thing they're happy about is if you say that you're leaving the business and opening a delicatessen. Then they're happy. So I just said, Kurt, nah. I said, Kurt, you know, it's just the same old, same old. We just, you know, you just keep knocking on the doors, hope one of them opens. I said, you got anything going? And he said, well, yeah, actually, I have something pretty good going. I'm playing this crazy character, Ned Ryerson, 
in this new movie Groundhog Day. Harold Ramis is a friend of mine, and they and and so uh, we've already had a few rehearsals for it, and uh, I'll be headed off to Chicago to, and in a cold sweat, thinking like, however this story ends, it's going to have a bad ending. I mean, you, you, you're in the car and you've gone over the cliff and you're going, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, you're already screaming, going over the cliff. So anyway, I said nothing. The next day, Kurt and I finished our scene early. I get in my car. I drive the two hours and 40 minutes to audition with Harold Ramis. I auditioned in the car ride back. And this is before we had iPhones. We did have the Telegraph, we had the Pony Express, and we had these big cell phones, you know, the big cell phones that you had. <laughs> Miami Vice, had. like the Don yeah, Johnson the Miami Vice. <laughs> the one the Army had. And I got a call from my agent saying, you got the part of Ned Ryerson. As soon as you finish this movie, you have to get on a jet and go to Chicago. By the time I got back to Paris, California, Kurt had heard the news, too. And he was understandably hurt furious i mean he 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 wanted he wanted uh, automatic weapons i imagine at this point or a big bazooka i i'm not sure but he was furious and uh we had to finish the movie there then i got on a jet and i headed to chicago and the other thing that was weird about this is the movie that Kurt and I were working on had the same line producer as Groundhog Day. And why is it important? What does a line producer do that's different from a regular producer? They create the schedules, the traveling, the schedules, they create everything. So because it was the same line producer, he could make sure I finished the one show in Paris, California, got on a jet to get to do Groundhog Day without having the required 12 hours in between work and jobs that you're supposed to have. You know, he was he was able to get around the job because he knew if it had been any other line producer said, no, Stephen has to have 12 hours. Nope. So I got on, I got to my little hotel room in Woodstock, Illinois at about 2.30 in the morning my call time was 6.30 in the morning. So I had about four hours between when I closed my eyes and when I had to, had to start acting. And I felt like I woke up, you know, at about 5, 5.15 after two and a half hours sleep. And I'm going like, I looked in the mirror. I felt like I was going to die. And I said, Stephen, there'll be time enough to sleep when you're unemployed. So... I got on my clothes, went out, and we started to do the first shoot. Now, already, this is kind of all extraordinary. I mean, nothing like this would ever happen, ever. The probability of Kurt, and just to put a cap on the Kurt Fuller story, just to let you know what kind of person Kurt Fuller is, when the movie Groundhog Day opened, one of the people standing in front of the theater was Kurt Fuller. And he said, I'm going to watch the movie with you. And he came in and he sat with me while we watched Groundhog Day for the first time. And afterwards, we stood up and Kurt said, I'm angry. You got my part, but at least you did a good job. Congratulations. And he hugged me and he says, I wish you all the success in the world. That's Kurt Fuller. And I always thought, like, if I could have that kind of class in <laughs> adversity, you know, wonder, wonderful guy. Uh, but going back to the, the weirdness of Groundhog Day, I'm first up, first shot, me and Bill Murray, and I'm terrified. I'm, I'm terrified. Bill Murray is talking to Harold Ramis, and Harold is gesturing for me to come over and meet Bill. And Bill is a very imposing guy. He's a big guy. I'm, I'm like six two and a half, six three. So is Bill. He's very imposing. And he broke away from Harold Ramis and came over to me. He says, show me what you're going to do. Show me. And I said, well, I thought I would. Bing, bing. You know, I said, I'm going to do this kind of thing. 
And he says, okay, you could do that. And we come out and there's about, I want to say 500 people from the town standing there <laughs> of their little town, Woodstock, Illinois, to watch Bill and I do this. It's 640, 650 in the morning now. Heart is pounding. I'm thinking like, oh my God, how am I going to live through this? And Bill looks out at this huge crowd of people and says, Stephen, you know what these people need? Danishes. Danishes. Come with me. So Bill grabs me by the arm and takes me to the bakery, which is on the town square, pulls out a wad of money, puts it on the counter and says, give me every donut, every Danish, every muffin you have in the store. And he says, Stephen, hold your arms out. So I'm holding them out, you know, like this. And they start put stacking boxes of donuts in my arm. This is before we even, the cameras even roll. We're both in costume. We're both ready to go. We come out, and then Bill starts throwing donuts and danishes and muffins to all the crowd, and everyone is cheering for him. He goes, there you go. Here's your breakfast. You know, breakfast and groundhog day. Enjoy. It's all on us. And, he's, and the crowd is cheering, and I'm thinking, like, how brilliant is this? That here we've taken over this town, and now Bill has taken over them. Now everybody is a huge fan of the movie. They feel like they're a part of it, and we haven't even <laughs> rolled one bit on one scene. Now, one more extenuating circa story for the beginning of this. So here we are getting ready to start, and we're trying to figure where I'm running from. I'll fail. I'll fail. And I'm running up to where I catch him on the sidewalk and the logistics and all that. My heart is beating. I'm thinking like, I can't do this. I can't go through with this. This is too much. And I look out at the crowd of people and there on the front row of crowd of people, there's someone on the end, someone that I knew and I had met four times in my life. His name was David Nichols. He was an actor from Dallas, Texas, where I'm from. And this was the fourth time I met David Nichols. The third time I met David Nichols in my life was when I was shooting Great Balls of Fire in Memphis, Tennessee. He was working on the art department, and that's when I got married in Memphis, Tennessee. And David Nichols celebrated my marriage with me in Memphis, Tennessee. The time before that I saw David Nichols was the first day I came out to Los Angeles. First day I came out and David's brother, Chris, says, you know, why don't you call my brother? He's out there. Maybe he could show you around. So I called David Nichols' number. This was the second time I saw my first day in Los Angeles. He said, yeah, I'm working on a movie. Why don't you have lunch with me? So I went out to the set and I had lunch with David Nichols, Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro, and Liza Minnelli. It was New York, New York. My first day in L.A., I'm seeing Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro, and Liza Minnelli, and David Nichols. And the first time I saw David Nichols in my life, I was 15 years old. I was doing the one-act play contest for our high school, and our teacher, Mary Curtis, asked a young actor in Dallas, David Nichols, who was a hot actor at the time, if he could come in and coach us. And David Nichols came in. And I'm trying to do this Moliere, Arpagon, in The Miser. And David comes up and says, Stephen, let me teach you some things about comic technique. He says, comic technique is all about specificity, not just energy, but starts and stops and, and surprises. And this, oh, let, let's do this. And, let, and so David Nichols is the guy who taught me comic technique when I was 15. And here I am at the beginning of Groundhog Day, and I'm looking across this crowd, and David makes eye contact with me, points at me, gives me two thumbs up, and suddenly all my fear was gone. And I thought, I'm doing this one for David. And the first day, first day went great, and uh, we, we had a, a great shoot after that. That's some of the weirdness of Groundhog Day. Now, you know, you're such a fascinating storyteller, and you know a lot of things a lot of people don't know is, and I want to how, find out how, true stories, you co-wrote that, or 
the movie. How does that even happen? Like, how did you know David Byrne? I mean, it's just, it's so random when you sit to you go through IMDb and you have like 275 credits. As I said, you're always working. And then you see three writing credits. And one of them is True Stories. And I remember going to see that movie in Philadelphia. At, I believe it was at Temple University because my buddy was doing an internship for some company. And it was like those screenings you had. So we went down to Temple, and I think I even did a little stand-up before it, because I think I, I warmed the crowd up. I don't remember. But I remember seeing it, because we were all big Talking Heads fans, and, you know. But so how did that come about? Because that's that's just, that I know that has to be a fascinating story. Well, that's also extremely weird. So um, uh, I, the first girlfriend I had in my life, we were together for 16 years. I met her when she was a freshman at SMU, and I was a sophomore. And the way we met was uh, when you're a freshman in a theater department, all you do is carry a spear. You, you don't play any real parts. But when you're a sophomore, maybe you can. And here I was at another crisis point, the first day of my sophomore year. And all the new freshmen are coming in, and I'm so nervous. Like, is is anything going to happen to me? Will God smile on me and will I get a part this year? Or am I still going to carry spears? I felt like my career, sophomore year of college, was at a turning point. So I climb up the spiral staircase the, up to the Margot Jones Theater, which was deserted. It was a little theater in the round. And I climb up into the seats into the dark. There's no light in the theater except what they call a ghost light on stage. That's a pole that they have in the middle with a light bulb on top and it casts a giant circle of light. So I'm standing up there in the dark and then I hear the door open and shut and I hear footsteps and I figure it's security to throw me out. And this girl, blonde girl, walks out on stage. She bows to the audience even though she doesn't see that I'm there. She's bowing to the empty audience and suddenly she strikes a pose like she's about to lose her balance. And I thought, she's walking across a tightrope. And she's trying to walk across the tightrope on stage, losing her balance, gaining her balance. Finally, she gets to the other side of the stage, bows to no one, and runs off stage. And I had fallen in love. And I had to find out who that girl was. And the girl's name, I found out the next day, was Beth. She was from Mississippi, freshman uh, actress in the theater department, and I've had to pursue her. And uh, I ended up finding her in the cafeteria and asked if I could have dinner with her, with her and her friends from the dorm. And that's how our relationship started. Uh, Beth Henley uh, was one of these actress girls who never really got cast in anything except as little girls or something. And her career just never really happened as an actress when we I was working in Dallas at the time what by the time I was a senior I had my equity card and my SAG card but Beth still really hadn't had any big parts at the school or anything the only way we could stay together is to go to graduate school together so we went to the University of Illinois and Beth tells me you know maybe instead of being an actress I should be a writer and I go, sure, baby, you know, or a dental technician, you know, maybe one of us should have a steady job. And there's always plaque, you know, there's plaque is our enemy and we don't need, you know, whatever you're going to write. The first full length play she wrote, she won the Pulitzer Prize for drama. Wow. The Pulitzer Prize for drama, <laughs> Crimes of the Heart, Beth Henley, Crimes of the Heart. Uh, one of the big fans of this was a producer of kind of kind of B-movies, kind of sketchy B-movies at the time, uh, who was a director as well named Jonathan Demme. This is before Jonathan Demme really had exploded with a lot of, of his movies. Um, Silence of the Lambs, etc., for which he won an Academy Award for. This is before then. So Beth and I, we're in Los Angeles together, doing Pilates way before Pilates was cool. No one did Pilates back then. And we were walking from Pilates, and a car pulls up beside us, and it's Jonathan Demme in a car. He goes, Beth, 
uh, Stephen, uh, would you like to? And, and he knew he knew of us because he was interested in crimes of the heart and had met us before. Uh, he says, would you like to come see a cut of my new movies, uh, Stop Making Sense? And we go, sure. He says, well, follow me over to the Academy. So we go over to the Academy and the Academy, 1,900 seats. It's huge. It's beautiful. It has perfect sound, perfect screen, perfect projection, everything. There was no one in the theater except Jonathan, his ex-wife, Evelyn Purcell, the talking heads, and Beth and I in this theater. So sitting right behind us was David Byrne. And I had recognized him from MTV. I go, oh, that's that guy. It's the weird guy. Uh, it's David Byrne. And uh, Tina and Chris were sitting on the front row, talking heads. And uh, Jonathan and Evelyn were, were behind us and David. So after we watched the rough cut, Jonathan's first cut of Stop Making Cinch, which I thought was one of the greatest concert films of all time. And if you haven't seen it, you got to see it. It's amazing. And uh, so Jonathan said, would you like to come out? We're going to go have Chinese food or something afterwards. So we went afterwards and David Byrne is sitting across from us. And David says to me, tell me what you didn't like about the movie. I go, well, David, I really loved it. No, no, no. Everyone always compliments us. Everyone always I don't want any compliments. I want criticism. I want to know what's terrible about the movie. I go, well, it's a little long. <laughs> it's a little long, but it's long great. I mean, I loved watching it. I'd watch it again in a second. I love. So that's how we met David Byrne. While we're at the table, he says, do you do you have a swimming pool at your house? Well, now that Beth was the Pulitzer Prize winner, we did have a home with a swimming pool. I go, well, sure, David. He says, well, I'm shooting a video for Road to Nowhere for MTV. Can we use your swimming pool in the backyard? I go, well, sure, David. <laughs> you know, not thinking of anything like lawsuits, insurance, or anything like that. We're just babes in the wood. So David and the company comes over and they use our swimming pool and uh while using the swimming pool uh i said well david what are you working on recently and, you know what are you doing after this he goes well uh we've been trying to put together a movie that i that i call true stories because while we're on the road we always stop off at these coffee shops where they have these magazines uh, worldwide news where they have these stories that are purportedly true, but they're not true at all. You, you know, they couldn't be true. They're too strange. And so we wanted to do some sort of movie where everyone in the movie has one of these true stories that's absolutely unbelievable. And Beth says, well, if you want to know about unbelievable true stories, you need to talk to my sweetie, which was me. And And she says, because... He can, uh, he can hear tones from people. And David goes to me, you hear tones? <laughs> so I said, well, David, it's something that happened in college. It was a very weird story. But yes, you know, I could hear tones. It was something that happened in college. Uh, we were at a movement retreat my sophomore year. Beth was a freshman. Sophomore year. And our, our movement teacher were... were Everyone's kind of doing yoga. Others are running off in the bushes to smoke marijuana, which was a very popular drug at the time. Very popular and highly inexpensive. And, and so people are all smoking grass. And then we sundown and we're getting around the fire. And our teacher says, I want you to go around in a circle and just say the first thing that comes into your mind. Well, at this time, the cartoon of Lord of the Rings was out. And also people were reading the book they had just discovered. Tolkien. And so people are stoned. All the kids in our class were kind of stoned. They're going like, uh, Hobbit. Then the next person will go, uh, Hobbit. Then the next person will go, Frodo. Next person will say, Gandalf. And it's coming around to me and I'm feeling the stress of it all. And I, I, it gets to me and I hadn't seen Lord of the Rings and didn't know what it was. <laughs> and then I just hear this 
sound in my head. I heard this sound in my head and I said to my teacher across the fire, I get, I get that you're not who you say you are. I get that you have an assumed name and your real initials are JK or JL. Pause. Then it goes to the next person. Uh, Frodo. <laughs> and it goes, beer, weed, far out. And it goes around like this. Everybody was going to spend the night there and be uh, mosquito food for the people around the lake. And I decided I'd go home. So I'm walking across in the dark to my car. And out of the shadows comes my teacher. And he says, Stephen, why did you say what you said? I go, I, I don't know. I, you, you said, say the first thing that came into your head. And I just heard this sound in my head. And I said what it was. He says, because it's true. I have an assumed name, and my initials are JK, like you said. So how did you know that? And I go, I'm sorry, I have no idea. <laughs> I got back to school the next day, and Beth was a freshman and too young to be in that movement class. Said, well, how was movement class? And I told her about this event, and she says, you hear tones from people? And I said, I don't know, honey. I." It, it's it's all too weird. I, it's too embarrassing. I don't. She says, "Do I make a tone?" So this was a great excuse for me to hold her hands for the first time. I said, "Well, to do this properly, I made this up. This is what the sex drive will do to you when you're 19." So I said, "Beth, I have to hold your hands, you know, and look at you." I looked at her in the eyes. I said, "Yes, you have three tones." And they're in the male range. It's very interesting because males and females have tones in different ranges. Uh, women's tones are low, and men's tones are generally high. Most people only have one tone, but you have three. But your three seem to be in harmony. And not only that, they seem to make a major chord. I'm not really sure what that means, but I think if it's a perfect fifth, I think it means that there is a physical compatibility. You see, this is all great you know, making out kind of talk. Uh, and if it's a perfect third, it's a spiritual compatibility. And Beth looked at me in the eyes and squeezed my hand so hard and says, we are going to make a fortune. Listen, let's become partners. You just say stuff like that. I will bring people to you. We could charge a quarter. We could charge a dollar. You just hold them and you say stuff about the tones and you say what it is. And, and this is what a male tone and female tone is. And this is fantastic. And so we became partners and Beth would bring people to us and we put the money in a jar. <laughs> and I think we made something like 16 bucks and we, we kept it. We kept it always in a jar on our bookcase, even when we became uh, an item. We fell in love and became an item, and we lived together for many years after that. And and we always had the money in a jar. So this is the story I told David Byrne. And David could not believe me and the hearing tone story. He loved it. So anyway, he hired Beth and I to be screenwriters of true stories based on this Meshuggah. This is another foreign word, which means crazy story. But we got hired to be the screenwriters. We had to turn in a first draft in 19 days, and Beth and I did it. We wrote true stories in 19 days and handed it off to David Byrne, and we did not hear from David for over a year. A year. Not like got the script like it, not like sorry you're off the job, not like nothing, not a peep, nothing. Then I'm driving through the Hollywood Hills and there's a knock on my car window. And you know, you're like, what, what, what? <laughs> and it was David Byrne on a bicycle wearing his little helmet and everything. He goes, roll down your window. I roll down the window. He says, are you gonna be by your house later today? And I go, well, sure, David, I'll be by that. He says, because there's something I want you to hear. And so I went back home and later that afternoon, David came by with his guitar and sat on our little willow furniture couch and sang a song, Radiohead, based on, that he wanted in the movie True Stories, based on the story I told him about hearing tones from people. 
Radiohead, I'm picking up something good. Radiohead. Anyway, the band in England on a Friday were big fans of David Byrne and big fans of True Stories. And so they changed their name from on a Friday to Radiohead. And so that's how my story of craziness when I was a sophomore in college got filtered through David Byrne, who turned it into a song, and then Radiohead turns it into the name of their band. And that's how I am very tangentially in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Just <laughs> by the skin of my teeth. Well, you know, the funny thing about Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is you also recorded a song with then Steve Vaughn that became Stevie Ray Vaughn. Well, he was always Stevie Ray Vaughn, but I think on the record we did, he was Steve Vaughn. It was, it was, well, that was idiotic. We were, I, Stevie Ray was not in our band. We were a folk group in high school. Uh, Jim Rigby, who's now a Presbyterian minister in Austin, Bobby Foreman, who was the one person among us who had real talent. I mean, Bobby was one of those freaky guys that any instrument you put in his hand, he was expert at. He could play the violin, he could play the bass, he could. He was fabulous, and he had a beautiful voice, and he ended up actually having a stint with the new Christie Minstrels. So he had a career in music. So the three of us, Jim Rigby, Bobby Foreman, and I, would go play at places like the Mormon, <laughs> the Mormon Church, you know, we, we, you know, we did, we did birthday parties and things like that. And I played the bass and Bobby played guitar and we all sang like Jesus met the woman at the well, you know, great party <laughs> songs at that, time. you know, you know, just crazy stuff. Anyway, uh, through connections of Bobby, we were picked, our little group was picked to put two songs on an album of Dallas guitar guitar bands each each group there would get two songs so we got two songs on that album and we're on our way to tempo two studios in dallas to record our two songs and bobby says well i asked one of the kids from neighbor from our neighborhood uh uh stevie vaughn uh if he'd play lead guitar on us i go stevie vaughn yeah you know jimmy's brother jimmy's little brother i go jimmy's little brother how old is Stevie? And he goes, well, like 14. 14? We don't need any 14-year-old kid playing on our songs. Bobby. Now, Jimmy Vaughn was already in rock bands around Dallas, you know, and he would end up in the fabulous Thunderbirds. He had a career ahead of him. But Stevie Vaughn, who the hell is this 14-year-old kid who should be mowing lawns? Anyway, I, I, I had great... I was highly insulted that I felt like the monkeys screaming like, we can play our own music. We don't need professional musicians to back us up. We, we're good. So we went to Tempo stu two Studios, and there was this kid, Stevie Vaughn, with his Gibson in his lap. And uh, he said, uh, so why don't you play me some of the songs that you're going to do so I can kind of figure out what I'm going to do. So we played part. And he heard about eight to 12 seconds of it. He goes, okay, stop, stop. Okay, I got it, I got it. So that's like a crappy song. So what if I do like a crappy lead and then I go into a good lead? And Bobby Foreman goes, yeah, great. Yeah, sure, great. So we recorded this the way the Beatles <laughs> recorded their first albums. All of us around the microphone singing the song together. None of this separation stuff. We just sang and did the harmonies and everything around a microphone. Then it was time to do the uh, lead instruments. So uh, Stevie went into his crappy lead, which was quite good. And then he went into his good lead, which was stratospheric. And everybody was stunned especially the adults you have to realize we were not adults we we were i mean i was 19 i was the oldest one in our group but everybody else they were we we're kids but in the room the adults were like and there was 
the typical recording pattern for all of this stuff was one take, one print, move on. So the engineer in there says, uh, son, that was pretty good. You got another lead you want to try for us? And Stevie goes, well, sure. And then he, and he, and he said, do you want it more like Hendrix or do you want it more like Clapton? And they go, your choice, man, your choice. He said, well, I'll do, I could do both. I'll do both. So, you know, he did this and now I'm a fly on the wall and I'm watching this amazing performance. And I'm looking through the glass at the adults through the record, the dark glass in the recording room. And they're like stunned. I mean, jaws open stunned. And one of the people runs, I'm watching through there, opens the door and starts yelling down the hallway. You can't hear it because it's soundproof glass, but it's like a silent movie, like saying, you got to come and see this. This is, this is, there's something happening here. You got to see. And then adults start coming into the room to watch him. And the recorder goes, uh, that was a real good kid. Uh, you got another one in you? And Stevie goes, well, I could do this all day. And so he got up, stood up, and started doing another, like, incredible lead with his hands flying all over the keyboard. And I'm looking at everybody's faces with the light from our room shining on their faces. And they all had the innocent look of children with wonder. And I realized it was the same wonder I was feeling in my heart. It was the first time any of us in that room had seen or heard the real thing. And by real thing, I meant genius. It's the first time we saw genius that close and it left us all speechless. And for the rest of our lives, you know, that moment will be imprinted on me where you try to, you try to see it when you can, because it's, you see things a lot of times that are well rehearsed. You see things that are glib and fun and, and fly by and you clap and it's, it's like eating something delicious and you're hungry the next second. But seeing Stevie and watching this stuck with us all, I think, for our whole lives up into this point. That's amazing. You know, it's crazy. Now, we'll get back to your acting. I have to ask you, because I said in the beginning, you're always working. So what was it like when the pandemic happened? Because I talked to a lot of musicians who were like, we didn't have to go on the road. Oh, my God, we have a family. Oh, my God. You know, and because they because, <laughs> you know, the life of a musician always on the road, especially now because people don't buy records anymore, albums, whatever. What was it like for you when the pandemic happened? Like, were you on a project that got shut down or were you about to start something? And then what yeah, happened? we got shut. We got shut down. We were on one day at a time. The first thing we noticed about we were starting season four and it was pretty much the first show of season four when the pandemic went when COVID really started. And it's when I did the Groundhog Day commercial for the Super Bowl. Uh, that was our first show season four that weekend. That's when coming back through Chicago, I saw hundreds of Chinese with masks on running through O'Hare Airport. And I'm going like, what's going on? There's some, it was the day Kobe Bryant was killed. And it's like, what the hell is going on with the world? What, what's happening? None of us had any idea. The first sign of anything happening was for the second show of One Day at a Time, maybe it's the third, second or third, no audience. We were a live audience show, no audience. And they said, well, it's because the filming, we're using uh, camera techniques that really are gonna be too hard to do in front of you. But then I began to see, no, uh, there's gonna be no audience. We're gonna use a laugh track now. Uh, the, we were shooting at Sony and the tours stopped happening. Now I was still working on the Goldbergs at the time. And, and I did throughout the pandemic and being on Sony Studios, which was always hundreds of projects, hundreds of movies, television shows, game shows. They even had pro tour buses where, you know, you could go in and this is like at Universal. This is where this is shot. This is where this is shot. The tour stopped and 
there were fewer and fewer productions happening. And this last year, when I did the last Goldbergs I did at, uh, at the Sony lot, it was like a ghost town. There's nothing there now. Nothing. There's no tours. There's no games. They don't even do Jeopardy there, it seemed like now. Goldberg's is the only thing that seemed to be happening. And it was shocking. The, the parking lot was empty. It, it was amazing. The, the pandemic, for me personally, was, you know, it, it gets you both. Now, so far, knock on wood, I haven't had COVID. But I think I've been the beneficiary of people who did get COVID. And suddenly they would have to drop out of a show. And I would get a phone call on Friday saying, are you free to come to work Monday? So I think what happened was whoever had that part got sick. And so they go to me as a fallback and they said, Stephen, can you come in and do this part? And, and so I got several parts during the first year of COVID from people, I think, who got sick. And I came in to take their place. Uh, now, one day at a time. Mike Royce, I know Mike. He's uh, it's, yes. it's a great show, and it's a great show. It's a remake. I mean, it, we all watched that. I, I, I try to tell people it was on Saturday, whatever night it was. We sat, the family sat and watched it on TV. What is it like when you go on a set and there's Norman Lear? I mean, the guy. I mean, well, I think he just turned a hundred. I mean, I'm I'm not even sixty, and I wake up and I'm tired. This guy's. Running, he's working on shows, and he's a hundred. I mean, what is it like for an actor to? Well, as you said, you saw the the genius when you saw Stevie Ray Vaughan. Well, yes, Norman Lear is a TV genius. He's a yes. groundbreaker, and I think any actor would be like playing baseball on an All Star team. You know, the manager is going to be great. What was it like when you got the call to do that show, and what was it like working with him? It was blessed. It's exactly what you said. It's you're you're with this genius. Uh, not only as a writer, not only as a producer, but as a human being, and and you're with someone who's been around the world a few times and knows what you have to be afraid of and knows what you don't have to be afraid of. Uh, fear is a, a great enemy when you're working on TV. You know, and, and if you have someone like Norman, we don't have to worry about that. And Norman's like having a coat of armor and you feel like every moment you could spend with him and learn from him is is an important moment. And I felt very uh, fortunate. You know, Norman, we, we had this kind of strange intersections throughout my life in that when I first came out to Los Angeles, you know, no job, no nothing. Uh, and they had these ca casting magazines like Backstage and Dramalogue, things like that with auditions. And all they really had were jobs for extras or whatever. So they were had Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and Jane Murray was casting director on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and they told like the casting office. So I wrote Jane Murray a letter and I said, I'm just in Los Angeles. I've just arrived. I have my degree from SMU. And if there's anything for me and she called me and said, we, we have a part for you to play an extra as one of Loretta's followers at a bowling alley. I'm Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Can you come in this week? I go, I would love to thank you very much. So my first job was as an, in L.A. was as an extra on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, Norman show. Then a girl from our hometown, Kay Callen, was on the original One Day at a Time. And she said, Stephen, have you ever seen a sitcom? And I go, no, Kay. She says, well, why don't you come and be my guest and watch One Day at a Time? So I'm sitting in the studio audience, and it's the first time, and that's, when I see Norman Lear, who introduced the show, and then Kay introduced me to Norman afterwards. So the first sitcom I ever saw was a Norman Lear show, and I met Norman then. Uh, so he's always been this person that's meant a lot to me. 
and uh, I uh, then I happen you know I happen to have written these books of stories uh, that Simon Schuster did of the Dangerous Animals Club and my adventures with God and Norman picked up one of the books just happened to pick up one of the books and it was a story about my mother and he he came to the set at one day at a time and he said you know this is such a beautiful story that you wrote about your your, your relationship to your mother was close and he asked me to be on his podcast to talk about my book because it kind of reminded him of you know growing up jewish in a non-jewish place is kind of a weird thing to do it's kind of a difficult challenge and uh so norman's meant a lot to me in my life i feel very blessed and privileged to have known him and, and worked with him now the show is no longer on which to many people's chagrin you know great reviews good following what is it like when you're an actor and a show that you know is good and it's yeah. got i mean it's kind of awards what is it like when an actor when, when it when you know it's going to be canceled do you sit there do you go through a depression or do you sit there and say this is the biz because you've been in for so long i mean as i said over 270 credits there's been shows you've been on that you know haven't gone i mean what is it like because that was that was one of those shows like sometimes people are like that got canceled like like reboot was just uh reboot was on hulu which was a great show that that didn't get renewed. It was only one season. Got great reviews. And you sit there as, as a viewer. You go, "What are these morons thinking?" Like, you know, that's good. And I'll never find out what happened. And now I'm pissed because, like in a drama, that cop is sitting there. He's a prisoner, and I don't know if he ever got out. And I'm never going to find out. So I'm <laughs> irritated. But what was what went through? Like, what, what was the, your mood like when that happened? Were you, were you pissed? Were you sad? Or were you both? Can you can you check the boxes? All of the above. <laughs> I was shooting the Goldbergs, right? I was doing a graduation episode, and I played the principal on the Goldbergs. And right before they knock on my door, I get a call from Mike Royce and Gloria calderon Kellett, our executive producers. And Gloria says, Stephen, we have some sad news. Our show is no more. And I'm like, huh? I mean, because One Day at a Time was as good a show as you could ever have on television. And then I hear the knock on the door. It says, Stephen, we're ready for you on set. So I go, Gloria, Mike, I'll call you back. I have to go. I have to go be funny in this show here, this Goldberg. I have to do this graduation. So I hang up on them. I get up. We're starting to rehearse. My head is spinning. And we start doing the scene from the Goldbergs outside and the Sony executives who who love the show as well, they're walking along the back and as I'm performing, I'm seeing one of our executives at Sony kind of look at me and do like a tear coming from his eye. And so the, all of this is happening at the same time. Uh, it's, yeah, you, you do get depressed and you, you do you get angry and then you do say it is the business and you say that's part of what this is. And you, you know, no one ever asked you to do this. You volunteered to do this for your life. And so there's an element, I think, in every job you have, that's something that you could possibly regret. So in show business, a lot of it is Everybody thinks, well, it's the talent. You know, do you have this talent or that talent? A lot of it is resilience. Do you have this for your defense? Do you have this for your defense? Can can you get stepped on, kicked around, and still go out and do something to make people laugh? Can Can you still perform under terrible circumstances? So I think that's a big part of being in the business, too, is just dealing with the whimsy but but you know now we're in a situation go back go back 10 years we knew what television was and if you go back 30 years you really knew what television was 30 years ago you had 
three stations, and maybe ABC, NBC, CBS, and maybe four, depending on your independent station in town, whatever, before you had cable. And so those three networks had enormous amount of power. When Norman did uh, All in the Family, you'd have, what, 55,000 families, or uh, 55 million, 55 million viewers watching All in the Family. Nowadays, uh-uh, uh-uh, because not only you have the three networks, but then you started having cable TV. Then you started having streaming that doesn't have commercials a lot of times, and now the three big networks, who's going to watch ABC, NBC, CBS? I would rather watch Queen's Gambit with no commercials. So the commercial industry has changed. Television being fed by commercials has changed into uh, streaming being fed by subscribers. So it's a whole different uh, economic structure that creates television. So now it isn't a matter of the sponsors loving the show anymore. We need to make, you know, Westinghouse happy. We need to make Betty Crocker happy. No. Now it's like we don't care who we make happy. We just need to have enough subscribers to warrant doing this again, which is why on Netflix, you know, we got three years on Netflix, which is good because usually Netflix cancels you after two. But we got three years on Netflix, and now they're saying, like, their algorithm says it isn't a matter whether the show's good. We need new to get new subscribers. So their algorithm is more shows, new shows to get another audience in. We got the uh, Latina, the Latinx audience. We got the Latino audience, Hispanic audience with one day at a time. Now let's do another show that tries to bring another audience in. So the, uh, the template for entertainment in America is changed uh, around the world is changing and changing rapid. Who goes to the theater anymore? It used to be, that's how I got discovered really was by a casting director doing a play, at, free play in Los Angeles theater. Like who, who's gonna go to theater with COVID? What happens on Broadway? What shows survive on Broadway? Only the huge, huge, huge blockbusters, the, the musicals that they've done a hundred times before, those things survive. Um, so the template for entertainment has changed radically uh, in the world, and it's still changing now. And we really aren't catching up with it. We don't really know what it is, where it'll stop. You mentioned the Goldbergs. I love that show, and I think you and yeah. Tim Meadows, you know, and you guys, you guys, you guys are just great on it. I mean, that's like, that's you know, you watch it, and you once again, you know, you guys are gonna have, you're gonna be great in the scenes. You know, it's just you guys are funny. How did that role come about? And did you know you'd keep going back and back and back as a principal? I mean, because it's something no. that a lot of times it happens. You go on, they go, oh, and a writer may say, I want to write for this. And you have people who have seen your work and they may go, well, yeah, I really want to write because I know he can pull it off. How did your journey into that happen? I think it's, it's a matter of the, on the Goldbergs, they do more shows a year than most shows do. I, I forget the number they do, but let me make it up. Let me say they do uh, 24 episodes a year, and most people do 18. I'm making those numbers up, so don't hold me. But they do more episodes. So what happens is they really are able to craft the first half of the season before as scripts before you start the season. And they're hoping to craft the last half while they're shooting what's going on. So they really don't know when they start who's going to be in how many episodes or how that's going to work out. So what they want are pieces to the puzzle in case they need it. So if we do a lot of episodes at the school, we have our principal, you know, we have, which was me, we have Tim Meadows, who's going to be the new principal coming in, uh, various teachers. We have the science teacher. We, have, you know, we have various teachers. So if we need them, we can bring them in. So that's kind of how the Goldbergs works. And you really never know at the start of the year, 
how many shows you're going to do unless you're one of the regulars. And uh, like this last year, they didn't do a lot of shows at the school. You know, they had babies and relationships and all that kind of thing happening. So you just kind of hang around and, and see if they call your number. And of course, and I have to say this about the Goldbergs, it is one of the most absolutely amazing crews that I have ever, ever seen, imagined, or worked with. And I could say that about Deadwood, too. Deadwood and the Goldbergs are stunningly good crews. And I mean the prop people, the sound people, the camera people, all those people who help make it work. It's like seamless. They do so much work to help support you. And uh, kudos to, to those guys, because no one knows who they are or how they do it. But boy, are they great. Are they great. They're fabulous. Before we go, you're such a good storyteller. Tell me a good story either about when you're on Seinfeld, Deadwood, or Memento. Pick one out and just give me a good story because you, you are... Now, you don't do your podcast anymore, right? Well, I, I'm a new grandfather, so that's kind of eaten into my podcast time. But I, I still have several new stories that I'm writing. And hopefully now that the baby is in preschool, there'll be, <laughs> there'll be more podcasts coming. Um, uh, here's, a, here's a Deadwood story. Uh, since you just are pressing me at the moment. Now, we have not worked this out, but here's a Deadwood story that I think explains what the show is. Deadwood was an amazing show. David Milch created that show. There was no show ever like it, probably never will be again. Uh, David, always idiosyncratic. We had to start shooting always before the sun rose. We had to be there before the sun rose every day, had breakfast, rehearsed in the dark because he only wanted to shoot with natural light because he wanted that sort of look. We had some of the most incredible crews you could imagine. But it was crazy. The things that we had to do, David would not let us wash our clothes. So you do the whole season and no matter, because he wanted the stains on our clothes to be consistent. So halfway through a season, we were ripe. I mean, it was, you could smell when Deadwood was coming. So I was doing a scene in the, uh, and, and David was a master of, David Milch would, there, there was one scene I remember with me and Bob Sanderson in main town, we rehearsed the scene in front of the bar and David said, well, you know what that scene needs? is a cattle stampede. And we're like, huh? Yeah, get on opposite sides of the street. We'll run cattle through here. I said, where are you going to get the cattle? He says, oh, we have cattle. We have cattle. We have horses. We have anything. We'll just bring them on the set. So he'd bring on like, you know, 50 head of cattle. And this scene that we rehearsed, me and Bill Sanderson, did, 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 did. now we're across the street. And it's like, oh. <laughs> and one of the cows jumps up on the sidewalk and starts chasing Bill. And he's like still shouting his line. And, and David Mills goes, great, cut. You know, that kind of thing happened all the time. So I was doing this scene where we were, we were plotting something. Uh, Powers Booth was in the scene. Several of us were in the scene in the Bella Union bar plotting on what we were going to do to kind of take over the town. So is a, is a, macabre scene and so powers booth had most of the lines and i was my job was to bring the camera into the saloon so the way that happened was i was out in the street camera was behind me i walk up to the bar and now the camera's shooting on the whole thing powers is behind the bar and it's one of these scenes where he's telling each one of us what the job is that he wants us to do so he goes, okay, I want you to go over there and you get Swearinch and this. Then I want you to go get Bullock and I want you to get keep him. I want you. So Powers is doing this planning session. We rehearse the whole thing. It's pouring rain outside. Of course, I have no umbrella. I have nothing. So we've rehearsed the scene. Now it's time to shoot it. So in the, in the, in the background, David felt the background was too empty. So he wanted some wild horses just running around behind in the streets so you see it through the 
saloon doors, just this chaos of horses running in the background. So I'm standing in the pouring rain, my ankles deep in mud, and they go action, and I start running toward the saloon, the camera's behind me. There was a horse that said, I've had it with the damn rain. And he walks in behind me. So he walks into the bar behind me, the horse does, and the horse comes up to the bar too. So now there's the four of us conspirators and a horse. Powers has his speech where he has to tell each person what he has to do. So he looks at me and says, I want you to go to Swearinger. I want you to do this. I want you to go to Bullock. And then he turns to the horse. I want you, because he thinks like this is probably a David Milch improvisation. He says, I want you to, I want you to go over to here. And I want you to make sure none of those Chinamen get up here. And, you know, you know, and he incorporated part of the speech he gave it to the horse. And we're all looking at Powers as he's talking to the horse. And then David Milch goes, cut, you know, cut, comes in. And uh, he says, we got to do that again. And uh, can we get the horse out of here? And Powers says to me, he says, Tubbo, uh, but the horse wasn't part of the scene. I got no Powers. You just did part of this, your speech to the horse. He said, well, I, I thought David had added him to the scene. No Powers. He just improvised like we all were. But that was Deadwood. That was dead, but I'd love to have footage of that scene. <laughs> That's awesome. Stephen, I want to thank you for coming on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's been nine years. I, as I said, I, I love watching you. Uh, where, how can people get in touch with you? I know. Are you on Twitter? I, I'm at Twitter just at Tobolowsky. You have to spell my name right, T-O-B-O-L-O-W-S-K-Y. Uh, also, um, you, you could hear my podcast at uh, uh, TobolowskyFiles.com. Just spell my name right. And all 99 podcasts there that have been on NPR and PBS stations, you, you could hear all those and they're for free and they're uh, great, great fun. People like to, you know, go to sleep by them, you know. Very, very... So check him out. Go to IMDb. You can check out all his credits. Go watch him. Right. It's great. Uh, you can go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 940 episodes. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, it's at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.